Hey, y'all. I love that line that you are mercy. Did everyone get a good night's sleep last night? Bunch of liars. There is no good night's sleep at camp. That can't happen. Um, I want you to turn your Bibles, your electronic devices, whatever you got. Let's go to John 17. Also, I want you to reach over and fasten your seatbelt. Put your crash helmet on. Because we are going to look at the Word of God together. If I say we need to pray more, or better yet, who didn't go to the prayer meeting this morning? Don't need to raise your hand. But if I said we need to pray more, what immediate, how do you immediately feel? Guilty, guilty right? Yeah, guilty. Many of us will feel bored, because prayer seems to be bored and boring. I know that I struggle many times in my prayer life where I'll be sitting there praying, and all of a sudden I'll look up and... How did that spot get on? And it, your mind just, it goes. It rolls. Uh, if I mentioned the need for prayer at an unbelieving friend's home, how would they respond? Maybe they start thinking of a trip to India, right? To engage in a three-day retreat on meditation. Perhaps transcendental meditation comes up, which uh, Robert Murdoch, creator of Fox News, tweeted recently. Uh, Flannery O'Connor was a famous Southern writer and when she was 21, she was studying at Iowa, and she sought to deepen her prayer life. So in 1946, she began a prayer journal. And her prayer journal consisted of two major points or emphasis. One was to pray her feelings to God, to learn to identify her feelings, and to pray them to God, not stuff her feelings, not surrender to her feelings, but pray her feelings to God. And then as she began to grow in praying her feelings to God, she began to sort of process her feelings before God. She would, uh, with brutal honesty, like here's an example. Here's an example of her praying her feelings. I want very much to succeed in the world with what I want to do. I am so discouraged about my work. Mediocrity is a hard word to apply to oneself, yet it's impossible not to throw it at myself. I have nothing to be proud of yet myself. I am stupid, quite as stupid as the people I ridicule. Now she wants to process her feelings to God. Here, here how it goes. Dear God, I cannot love thee the way I want to. You are the slim crescent of a moon that I see, and myself is the earth's shadow that keeps me from seeing all the moon. What I'm afraid of, dear God, is that my self-shadow will grow so large that it blocks out the whole moon. And that I will judge myself by the shadow, which is nothing. And I do not know you because I'm in the way. At the end of one entry, she simply cries out, Can't anyone teach me how to pray? Millions and millions of people all over the world are asking that very same question. Can't anyone teach me how to pray? We're about to look at the third recorded prayer in the book of John by Jesus. So those of you that are struggling in your prayer life, you should feel pretty good because Jesus only prayed three times in his life. According to the book of John, right? This should make us feel a lot better. It's also the longest. It's incredibly unusual. I want you to think about it in John 17. You and I get a rare glimpse at an intra-Trinitarian communication. 
God the Father and God the Son are talking. They're communicating. And you and I get to listen in. We actually get to put an ear and watch what happens within the Trinity. It is a rare glimpse. It is nosebleed kind of glimpse. You don't get this kind of stuff. So as I read this, I just want you to enjoy it. I want you to try to think through, what do you think it would be like for God to talk to God? What would that conversation be like? In our tradition, in our church, we stand for the hearing of God's word. So if you can and you're able, please stand. We're going to look at verses 1 through 5. We also say at the end, this is the word of Lord. And you can say, thanks be to God if you like, or you can not. Whatever you'd like to do. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that their son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give him eternal life to all who have, you have given it to. And this is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had before the world, with you before the world existed. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right, let's pray. Oh God, we ask that um, we ask that you would shine on the page. We ask that you would plant the imperishable seed and that it would grow and it would bear fruit. We ask that you would give light, as the Puritan would say, to the mind and heat to the heart. So, oh Lord, fill us with your spirit. Enable us and equip us with your spirit. Do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, so what do you think? Is that what you imagined an intra-Trinitarian communication would look like? Did you think that was how it was going to begin? Maybe, yes, I don't know. What does it mean? Why are we going to spend time looking at this prayer other than this is what was set up for us? What is this passage attempting to do in your life? I hope through our time together that we also grow in how to read the Bible and interpret the Bible. You and I need to know that the Bible is always going to take you somewhere. When you grab a text, it doesn't matter where it's a proverb or poetry or narrative or a proposition, there's an intent there. And the intent there is that that passage wants to take you somewhere. It's not in neutral. It has a destination. It's active. It's going after you. So what, what's going on here? What does God want to do in your life here? I want you to look at verse 3. This is the central idea of the whole passage. This is what the passage is doing. This is what the passage is up to. This is what you can expect God to do through this passage. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus, by this prayer, is seeking to give God to you. The whole purpose of this prayer is to unleash the lion on you. The whole purpose of this prayer is to plant that imperishable seed in you in such a way that you know God and Jesus says, and that's eternal life. When you think of eternal life, I want you to think of supra life. I want you to think of ultra life. I want you to think of life in its highest potency. I want you to think of paradise. 
literally, like the song says, walking on sunshine. It is life in its highest power. (laughs) Knowing God is the meaning of life. I know your age group. I've been your age group a while ago. But I know you struggle with the meaning of life. I know you struggle with what is my life all about? Why am I here? And I'm talking to you as a Christian. Jesus says, my friends, the meaning of life is knowing God. It's knowing me. It's a friendship me. They were the best of friends. They grew up together in an 1800s England. They were complete opposites, but they were the best of friends. And after college, they separated, each which to their own calling, their own vocation, their own sense of meaning and purpose in life. One went to the theater and he excelled. He became an instant success in a culture that loved the theater. It would be like our culture today with the movies. And I love movies. And this person ends up going on to great success. He would have been like the Brad Pitt of the 1800s, this guy. His other friend goes off to be a missionary called to an unreached region in Africa. Well, 20 years later, the missionary friend had to come back to England because of health issues. And so his friend wanted to surprise him at the theater. And so what he ended up doing is at the end of one of his, he gave him tickets at the end of one of his shows. He put him on the front row and he decided to recite the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, right? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. It was incredible. He was like a shepherd, the Lord of the theater, leading the whole palace, the theater, in perfect emotion, perfect diction, perfect pitch, pace, punch, pause, He was brilliant, and everyone was on the edge of their seat, and when he was done, they stood up as one, and it was a standing ovation, and it took forever for the crowd to finally calm down. And after the crowd finally did calm down, to the surprise of all, most of all, to the missionary friend in the front row, he asked his missionary friend if he would come up on stage. And he said, hey, would you recite the 23rd Psalm? His friend was a little befuddled and he was a little shy because he was more, more of an introvert type, obviously, to the extrovert friend he had. And he began, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And verbal power erupted. And people were cut to the heart. So much so when he was done, it was like the It was like a church when it's empty. There wasn't a sound to be heard. There wasn't even a cricket because they were listening. Everyone was stunned. Now there's a reporter who's there and he's watching all this and sometime later that night at an after party or whatever, he came up to the the theater guy and he said, man, I mean, you are unbelievable. You are an orator, command of the stage, command of the audience, par." Excellence. Nobody's like you. 
You were perfect in your delivery. You were perfect in everything about your oratory skill. And he says, but when you were done, the place erupted and everybody was on the edge of their seat. But when he was done, nobody moved. They were cut to the heart. And he's not a good speaker. And I just have one question for you. What's the difference? What's the difference? And his missionary, well, the the orator, without flinching, turned and said, because that man knows the shepherd. There is a difference, a great difference, between knowing about God and knowing the shepherd. This passage that we are looking at today is intending to make you know the shepherd. It wants you to know the shepherd. So the question is how? How do you and I know God like that? Know God like that missionary friend? How do we? Here's what we're going to do. First, we're going to answer how we know this, how we know God, and then we're going to experience it. So we're going to intellectually look at it, and then we're going to experientially experience it, because this passage is actually meant for you to experience as well. So how do we know the shepherd? I'm going to give you the answer right now. You're going to look at me like, what in the world did you just say? Hang in there. That's all I'm going to say is hang in there with me. Here's the answer. How do you know the shepherd? You need to become, I need to become an intelligent mystic. You ready? I know I'm just killing you. I'm absolutely killing you. Those that are in our tradition are like, you got to be kidding me. Who called this guy to come in here? All right, well, most folks today, and I want you to know this, and I want you to hear this. Most folks today and most folks in church history divide themselves into two camps. One camp is the doctrinalist camp. These are the truth experts. This is where the focus is theology. It's doctrine. It's propositions. It's getting it right. It's the life of the mind. Then there's another camp, and they're called the mystics. Now remember, these two camps have existed in church history since the church has been around. And they they look at each other very suspiciously. They really don't like each other very much either. Now the experienced folks, these are folks that are into contemplative spirituality and the spiritual disciplines and getting it felt, not getting it right. And the life of the heart, not the life of the mind. So you have these two camps now, I want you to find the word no in, in verse 3. Do you know what that word means in the original language? It means that both camps are right. It means to know God, you must have and you must be intelligent. You must have clarity in your mind. And to know God, you must be a mystic. It must be real in your heart. If a Puritan was here, they'd say, you've got to have light, understanding in your mind, and heat, passion in your heart, or you don't know God. There is no false dilemma. There is no false dichotomy. There is not two camps. They're both right. 
It's, it's a marriage that was never meant to be divorced, and for some reason we like to divorce them. So knowing God is both being intelligent and it's being mystical. You've got to become an intelligent mystic. You have to. Even our own tradition, those of you that come from the Reformed, the Presbyterian, from our tradition, our heroes knew that it was always both. Well, who, Jeff? Well, Luther, Calvin, John Owen, Jonathan Edwards. In fact, John Owen, he preached a sermon. You know what he did with the text? He unpacks the glories and the wonders of the propositions, the doctrine in the text. And then he says this about the text. Get an experience of the power of the gospel. Get it upon you and in your heart or your profession is an expiring thing. Intelligent. Mystic. The one who coined this phrase is a guy named John Murray. When I read that, I just about flipped because John Murray is a Scottish theologian. And Scotland is not a happy place. They don't feel over there. They grunt, right? It's the last place you'd expect someone, a Scottish theologian, to coin a phrase like intelligent mysticism, clarity to your mind, realness in your heart. Come on. We've all seen Braveheart. I'm going to go pick a fight, right? We've all seen it. Have you? Do you all know Braveheart? Okay. Whew. Good night. All right, this is what he says. This is what John Murray says. It is necessary for us to recognize that there's an intelligent mysticism, there it is, in the life of faith, of living union and communion with the exalted and ever-present Redeemer. He communes with his people, and his people commune with him in conscious, reciprocal love. The life of true faith cannot be that of cold, metallic ascent. In other words, it can't just be doctrinal understanding. It can't just be getting it right. It's got to get felt. It's got to have clarity in your mind, and it's got to have realness in your heart, or it's not a knowledge of God. To know God, you must be an intelligent mystic, and Jesus is praying that you and I become one. That's what this whole prayer is about. You knowing God, you launching into paradise, you experiencing the highest potency of life there is, you actually tapping into the meaning of life. So what does an intelligent mystic look like? I want you to look in in verses 1 through 5. Notice there's a lot of glorifying going on here in verses 1 through 5, isn't there? You got glorifying the Son three times, you got glorifying God two times. So here's the intelligent part. Now we're going to put on our minds and we're going to think hard. You've got to have mental sweat. You've got to roll up your sleeves when you go to the text. It's not for lazy endeavors. It's a mental sweat. So here's some of the mental sweat. We're going to start with verse 4. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Remember, we're talking about what are these glorifying, this glorifying going on. What is that? Well, Jesus starts with his finished work. What? Well, what's his finished work? Well, what we do know is that there's a work that was given and Jesus did it. And when he did it, as he did it, he's glorifying God. He's exalting God. He's making God famous or known, right? So let's keep going. What is the finished work? Look at verse 1. The hour has come. Now, this is obviously emphasizing his death, but it's also comprehensively taking in an incarnation, a perfect life, and an ongoing resurrection and exaltation. Okay, Then you go down to verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So now he's emphasizing the exaltation, but it's connected to his incarnation, his perfect life, his death, and his resurrection. 
So you put all this glory going on together. What do you get? Jesus' finished work. You get Jesus' redemptive work. You get an intrusion into this world. You get a perfect life that no one else has ever lived in the history of the world. No one has lived a perfect life except Jesus. You get a punishing death. You get an incredible resurrection and exaltation. That work glorifies God. That work, in verse 1, that the Son may glorify you. That makes it clear. I glorified in you, you on earth. How? I accomplished the work you gave me to do. To glorify someone or something is to make much of it. It's to make it famous. It's to make it what? Known. Known. There's a fountain of living water up here, and it's inexhaustible. It's the best water you've ever had. It never runs out. How are you going to glorify that fountain of living water? What are you going to do? You could go up to it and take thousands and millions of buckets, and it will never drop. How are you going to glorify it? You know how? You've got two choices, and it will define your Christian life. You will either approach the fountain of living water like this, get your bucket, your bucket of dirty water, I glorify you, God. Did it take? Or you're going to get on your knees and you're going to drink till your heart's content. And as you drink, you exalt. As you need, you honor And you show a fountain of living water to be exactly what it is, which is life itself. And you need the life. And the more you know it and the more you drink it, the more you exalt it, the more you honor it, the more you make him famous. To coin a phrase from a a once famous, I don't know if he is anymore, John Piper, the giver always gets the glory. That's why Christianity is always about grace. Because it's always about God being the one that gives. God being the one that makes himself known. God the one doing it all. You and I don't give. Even our giving, if you want to talk about giving, give you your tithes. You're giving what you've already received. And in your giving, you're actually receiving. But more about that later. We've got to move on here. The chief end of Jesus' redemptive work. What's the goal? It's to make God known. It's to make God famous to you. Verse 3. The whole purpose. When Jesus left heaven he was making God known to you he was connecting God to you when Jesus lived a life and when you watch him this is what when you read that when you read the gospels I want you to reread the gospels because what you're looking at is Jesus living the life you couldn't live when he loves someone perfectly when he's exhausted he's doing that for you because when you're exhausted you're not fun to be around If you don't, my wife doesn't have her coffee, I don't speak to her. (laughs) Have you had your coffee, honey? Okay. I'll wait. Right? She's nodding over there. Jesus lived a perfect life, and that perfect life is being exhibited in the Gospels for you. That's your life now. That's your story now. And that life is to make God known to you. And when Jesus goes to the cross 
And he takes all your sin and the specific things that we just talked about today. He didn't just take your sin. He became it. He became your adultery. He became your pornography. He became your lying. He became your inability to forgive someone and your grudge. He became it. Why? To connect God to you. To make God famous to you. So that you have eternal life, which is to know God. And you know what happened then when he, when he rose from the dead and he got, he got crowned king? King. 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 Majesty beyond majesty. He was connecting you to God. He was making you your true self and making God known to you. John Knox was mentored by John Calvin. My firstborn is named Cal for Calvin. My second son, not my second child, is named Knox. And the reason why is because Calvin mentored Knox. They were spiritual brothers. They were a band of brothers. When Knox studied and was mentored by him, Calvin knew that his apprentices would leave him and probably die. And John Knox was instrumental in bringing the gospel to the English-speaking world. If you consider Scotland English-speaking, there's still some controversy on that. Well, later in life, John Knox is coming to the end of his life, and he's dying, and he knows he's dying. And he asks his wife to read what passage? John 17, 1 through 5. And while she read... Jesus took him home. Took him to eternal life. Took him to super life. Ultra life. The meaning of life. And this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Start knowing him now. Become an intelligent mystic. I guess I'll close in prayer. Let's pray. Oh God, we ask that you would do that. Jesus, our Redeemer, our Savior, our King. Everything you did was to bring God to us, was to exalt God by making him known and famous to us. And so we ask that you would give and grant what you, what you prayed for, what you prayed for in John 17, what you pray for now on our behalf, that we would actually know you with clarity in our mind and realness in our heart. Amen.